Hi, Sunday Society. The episode you're about to listen to contains graphic descriptions of violent crime. Please listen with care. Welcome back, esteemed members of the Sunday Society. I'm Bianca. And I'm Hannah. And today we embark on a journey into the complex and enigmatic case of Ellen Greenberg. Prepare for a deep dive into the intricate details of a case that suggests she may have met a tragic demise quite different from what the official narrative suggests. So, grab your coffee, get spooky, and let's take back Sunday. Ellen was a quintessential millennial, just like many of us. She was in her late 20s, living in Philadelphia, working as a teacher and enjoying life to the fullest. Friends and family described her as vibrant, full of life, and always ready to seize the day. She had her whole life ahead of her. Tragically, she was found lifeless in her Philadelphia apartment on January 26, 2011. The initial conclusion? Suicide. However, a comprehensive examination reveals a narrative far more intricate than the simple explanation that was presented. The details are chilling. Ellen's body was discovered with multiple stab wounds, and the knife was found embedded in her chest. Further compounding the mystery were defensive wounds on her hands, strongly implying a struggle had taken place. According to the autopsy report, there were eight wounds to her chest, ranging from 0.2 centimeters to the final four-inch wound of the knife still embedded in her chest, a two-inch wound to her stomach, a two-and-a-half-inch long gash across her scalp, and 10 wounds from nicks to two about three inches deep to the back of her neck. There were also 11 bruises in various stages of healing on Ellen's arm, abdomen, and legs. Guys, I made the mistake of looking at the autopsy photos. These stab wounds are devastating, and I feel that I can bet my life that she did not do this to herself. I can't even wear pants that are too tight because it hurts, let alone stab myself so tragically that it nearly severs my brainstem. I actually, I had to take a step away from the computer after seeing these photos. They are out there to review, but I do caution you, be very, very careful when conducting research on this case. Ellen Greenberg lives with her fiance, Sam Goldberg, and he leaves to go to the gym about 445 in the afternoon and the evening time. It's January. It's There's a big winter storm moving in. He's going to the gym in their building. He's gone for maybe an hour. When he returned from the gym, he found that the swing bar lock to their apartment was engaged from the inside. So like, you know, in hotel rooms, you can have like those swings that you just kind of close. So he couldn't get into the apartment, even though he had his key. He tried to reach Ellen through phone calls and text messages. And I was able to find what these messages said, and maybe it's normal for their relationship, but I'm going to let you be the judge. I am going to read them. Um, I will censor them because there is language used in one of them. In addition to this, he tried to call her between 5.30 and 5.42. It doesn't say, the reports don't say how many times he tried to call in that 12-minute frame, just that there were, quote, additional missed calls. Um, And then these are the messages that came through between 5.32 and 5.54 from the investigation report. First one says, hello. Second one, open the door. Third, what are you doing? Four, I'm getting pissed. Five, hello. 
Six, you better have an excuse. Seven, what the Eight, ah, and you know, A with a bunch of H's. And then the last one says, you have no idea. I have two schools of thought here. If Sam was involved, I don't think he would have sent those messages, right? Like, if he had done this, wouldn't he have just laid low and, like, left? Or maybe he's, this is the working of a sociopath who knew that the police would be looking at his phone and through hers. I I try to lean more towards the idea of Occam's razor in this case, which states that the simplest explanation is the best. And for me, these messages seem authentic and from someone who's pissed that his fiance's locked him out of the house. Well, and I'm going to say this, that I feel like if he had done it on purpose because he thought the police would be looking, he would have been nicer in the text. You would think so, right? Like, hey, babe, is everything okay? Yeah, I'm worried about you. Why is the door locked? You know, but he was like, it feels very genuine. Like, I am irritated. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Which I I can see that. Like, if I can't get into my house and I think you're inside and you've just locked me out, I would have been frustrated too. Yeah. So for me, that seems genuine. Those seem like real, the real experience. There is security footage that shows him trying to get into the apartment. So when she didn't respond, Sam went and asked the apartment building doorman on duty that night, his name's Phil Hanton, to help him break the lock. Hanton said, that's against company policy, so I can't help you with that. So Sam just did it himself. And I did look at the photos. It does look like someone kicked the door in because the screws that hold that um, lock in place were popped out. Yeah. So I have a question because I don't want to forget as we kind of dive into this since I don't know this story. Yeah. Was there video of him actually at the gym? I think so. I think there's video footage that shows him going to the gym. And like being there at the time. Okay. Yeah. Once Sam breaks in, this is when he walks into this horrific scene of Ellen slumped over in the kitchen covered in blood. This is when he makes the 911 call. And I do have the audio of that call courtesy of Gavin Fish, who is an investigative journalist. And I kind of used a lot of his resources that he compiled, you know, to look at the court documents, the video footage. He has all of that. I did utilize that resource. I am going to play that for us to listen to. If you don't want to hear the call because it is the actual 911 call that Sam made, fast forward about five minutes because we are going to play this for you to listen to right now. Help, I, 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 need, I need a emergency now. I just, I just walked to the right part of my fiance's on the floor with blood everywhere. What is the address? 4601 Flat Rock Road. Please come, help, 4601. now. 4601 Flat Rock Road. Is this a house or apartment? <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. It's an apartment. What apartment number? <laughs> Please hurry. 4601 Flat Rock? Yes. What's wrong? 
my, my, I just, my, I went downstairs to go work out. I came back up. The door was latched. My fiance's inside. She wasn't, she wasn't answering. So after about a half hour, I decided to break it down. I see her now just on the floor with blood. She's not, she's not responding. Okay. Is she breathing? She, I, <laughs> look at her chest. I need you to calm down. and I need you to look at her chest. It's really. I don't think she, I really listen, don't think she listen, is. Listen to me. Someone's on the way. Look at her chest. Is she flat on her back? <laughs> She's on her back. So okay, I her... Look at her chest and tell me if it's going up and down, up and down. I don't see her moving. Okay, do you know how to do CPR? I don't. Okay, I can tell you what to do, okay, until they get there. I want you to keep her flat Oh, on God. Her... Hello? Yeah, hi, okay. Are you willing to do CPR with me over the phone until they get I guess, there? I, I have to, right? Okay, so get her flat on her back, bare her chest, okay? You want to rip her shirt off. Okay. Kneel down by her side. Oh my God, Ellie, please. Listen, listen, you can't freak out, sir, because you okay, I'm trying not. I'm trying not. Her shirt won't come off. It's a zipper. Rip oh my off. God, she stabbed herself. Where? She fell on a knife. Oh no, her knife's sticking out. Her uh, what? There's a knife sticking out of her heart. Oh, she stabbed herself. I I guess so. I don't know where she fell on it. I don't know. Okay, well, don't touch it. Okay, so, so I just, just let her down. Here now, I mean, what do I do? No, I mean, you can't, if the knife is at her chest, it's going to be kind of hard for you to do CPR at this time. Oh, no. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Police with shop reader. 277. Is All someone right. coming here? Yes, they are. You said 4601 Flat Rock, right? Yes. Okay, someone's on the way. And the knife is still inside? Which or what? The knife is still inside of her? Yes, I didn't take it out. Was it her chest or what area? It's, it's in her heart. chest. It's like, it looks like it's, it looks like it's right in her heart. Okay, someone's on the way out there. Okay, just get Oh my God, oh my God. How okay. old is she? She's 27. 27, and there's no sign of life at all? No, 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 please don't be. What? Been trying to her arm and tell me she responds to pain. She's... Ellie! She's not, she's not, her arm and her hands are still warm. I don't know if that means, but there's blood everywhere, I mean. I know, but you can't, and the knife is still inside of her. How far? Can you see how far it went in? It looks pretty deep. Okay. It looks three, and it's a long knife. Don't touch anything. Yeah, don't touch anything, okay? I'm not touching anything. This is, I can't believe this, though. No, wait, it was just you there with her? We, yeah, we're the only ones here. And she ran in the door, you said, latched it shut? No, no, I, I, I went downstairs to work out, and I, when I came back up, the door was latched. Oh, like, it was, you know, it wasn't like, it was, you know, it was like locked from the inside, and I'm yelling, and I saw it was, so I'm, well, you know, was yelling. Was broken and into? No, 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 no. So no sign of a break-in? No, no sign of a break-in at all. I mean, there will be when you get here, because I had to break the latch, but to get in. Okay, 4601 Flat Rock, and this is a house, right? It's an apartment, Flat Rock apartment. Okay, that'll Oh my God, oh my God, all right, thank okay. you. Mm-hmm. Bye. I've listened to that call numerous times over the last few years after I heard the first episode ever about this case. The biggest issue that I have here is I can't figure out if Sam's calmness when talking to the fire department, starting at about a minute, 15 seconds, is an attempt to not absolutely lose his mind, or if it's indicative of something more serious. I try to imagine how I would have felt in that moment, and me being an incredibly queasy person, I can guarantee you that I would have gone into fight or flight, and then gone into either fix it and try to make it better, or I would have passed out. 
and the latter is more likely, if I'm being honest. I would have seen that situation. My brain would have been like, absolutely not. We're out of here. And I would have passed out. I, I would not have been helpful in that situation. And you can hear the dispatchers trying to calm him down multiple times. They're like, you have to calm down. You have to calm down. And I think that he gets kind of a bad rap for being calm. But it's like, they're telling him to calm down. I think, especially as a man, he is like, okay, you got to get this. You got to get yourself together. Right. I think that's what happens between the first call and the second call is he is trying to get himself together. And when they mention. he's still freaking out. Even when he's calm, he's still freaking out. And you can tell when they mention CPR, I could hear it in his voice. Because I know how I feel when I get queasy, like I'm going to faint. That's almost what it felt like. Like, I heard him say, oh, like you could like feel that he to, was not. I think he was nervous. Of put, I think he was nervous to touch her. Yeah. Can, I mean. I can't imagine. Because at that point, he didn't even see the knife in her chest yet. Yeah. Which is strange that her jacket was zipped up over the knife. Or maybe, like, she might have just been tilted in a way that he didn't see it initially. I'm not sure. But he walks in and has no idea what happened. But. I don't like that his first response when the um, 911 dispatcher guides him, like, into performing CPR, and his first response is, I have to, right? Like, that kind of gave me the bad shivers. They're engaged. They had been for three years. You would think his first reaction would be to immediately ask, like, how can I do it? How can I help? What can I do to save her? Now, I've never been in a situation like this. Never. Not even close to something like this. So I have no idea how I would have responded or reacted. But I would like to think that the first thing I would say would not be, I have to do CPR, right? Like, I have to, right? Like, I'm legally obligated to, right? I just, I didn't like how that felt. As we continue to unravel this case, it's crucial to remember that every detail, no matter how seemingly insignificant, plays a role in deciphering the truth. The 911 call in this case is a cryptic clue that begs for further examination according to some people who like to link Sam in some way to possibly being responsible for this. Continuing through the initial investigative report, it is documented that the, quote, apartment is well kept, it's clean, the inside lock to the front door is broken with the screws on the door loose, obviously forced in when in a locked position, end quote. Confirming Sam's story that, so far, that he had to break into the apartment due to the door lock being activated. There are three laptops in the apartment. One is Sam's, one is Ellen's, and one is her work computer, none of which found any trace of a suicide note, but there were some searches that might have led investigators to believe that this intent was there. About three weeks prior to this tragedy... On December 18th, Ellen's computer shows searches for, quote, suicide methods. Then again, on January 3rd, she is seen looking at a JPEG from a CNN um, website of, quote, sex fantasy death. And then other searches for Zoloft, Prozac side effects, sertraline, which is the medical name for Zoloft. And I actually take that. And that's how I know what that is. And what I find to be the most heartbreaking are so many searches about Zoloft and weight gain and the Atkins diet, and emotional eating. Listen, I am on Zoloft, and before that, I was on Lexapro for about four years. The weight gain is real, and the inability to lose weight is real, and I imagine with her upcoming wedding, she was feeling a lot of pressure to stay thin and lose weight, 
And if I could say one thing to her today, I would tell her how absolutely breathtakingly beautiful she is. We'll post photos on our social media for the case so you can see just how truly lovely she was. And it breaks my heart to think that she was struggling with her appearance. I mean, you and I looked at pictures of her. She's beautiful. Yeah, she is beautiful. Like, I can't... And tiny. And tiny, yes. Yeah. But I think... Honestly, it's sometimes in your head, that's not what you think you look like. Body dysmorphia is a, it's a bitch. There's just no other way to say it. So then on January 9th, there were some more searches regarding a woman who had died while trying to use Twitter in the bath. Um, on January 10th, I think the most damning searches were conducted. It shows that at 12.41 a.m., Ellen, or someone on Ellen's computer, Googled, quote, quick suicide, an article on euthanasia, and finally a religious site regarding painless suicide. All of these were done within two minutes' time, and there are no additional records of anything, any searches that were done after that to show if she looked at anything else that night. Now, I can understand the gravity of this search history, coupled with her diagnosis of depression, but I cannot truly believe that if she were looking up euthanasia and painless suicide methods that she would have chosen to stab herself to death in one of the most gruesome acts of violence I've seen. Though In those searches, she's looking at euthanasia. She's looking at painless suicide. Forgive me if this is crass, but none of that was painless. Absolutely not. She, she suffered. She of suffered. Course. And that is heartbreaking. So then I, this makes me wonder... Why didn't anybody hear this? Would she have not been screaming? You would think, yeah. And then also, didn't you say that on her body she had bruising of different, like, Mm -hmm. healing processes? Yeah. Which could be alarming, but I also have bruises on my body that are all in different stages of healing. Yeah, and, like, I would like to know more about those bruising. Like, are they... Well, if she's a teacher... I my knee. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Teachers with little kids, you know, you're always getting bumped into and... But, like, are or are they, like... Ominous. Like, someone's hurt you and they're healing bruises. Yeah, exactly. This must have been the initial thought of the assistant medical examiner, Marlon Osborne, because he ruled the manner of death a homicide in his initial report after the autopsy on January 27th, which was the next morning. Now, I spent a good amount of time reading through this autopsy report, and in my non-expert opinion, I do agree with the findings here. This was most definitely a homicide, if not undetermined. There's one stab wound in particular that really stood out to me, and it's labeled stab wound T of the neck. The wound is seven centimeters deep and extends through the skin. We're going to talk about some graphic stab wounds here. The wound is seven centimeters deep and extends through the skin and muscles of the back between the second and third cervical vertebra laterally and incises the dura covering the subjacent spinal cord. Associated with the wound track are hemorrhages in the adjacent soft tissues of the left side of the back, a defect of the dura and focal epidural hemorrhage. Grossly, there is bulging of the cervical cord subjacent to the dural defect. I looked this all up. Specifically, bulging of the cervical cord subjacent to the dural defect because that sounded traumatic to me. So to first understand how bad this injury was, I'm going to detail what some of these words mean. The dural defect, for instance, is an injury to the dura, which is a tightly woven tubular membrane that encases the spinal cord. So essentially, the stab wound was so devastating that the protective membrane around her spinal cord was damaged and her spinal cord was bulging out of it from that that Mm. incision. Now, the report does note that neuropathologist Dr. Lucy Rourke 
examined the spinal cord and concluded that there is no defect of the spinal cord. So I have to assume that this means the stab wound did not actually damage the spinal cord, but just the membrane around it. I continued to research the dura and how thick it is. And y'all, it's not very thick, but there is a second layer from what I could research and what I found that protects the spinal cord called the pia mater. And there's no mention of this being damaged anywhere in the report. So it's likely that whoever did this damaged the outer layer of the membrane, but did not penetrate all the way to the spinal cord. I'm not sure though, in what order this wound occurred, but I have to imagine that this kind of trauma to the spinal cord would cause some pretty damaging side effects. And yes, I looked them up. Here's what you can expect to feel if you have a damaged dura during, according to the National Institute of Health. Postural headaches, nausea, vomiting, pain or tightness in the neck or back, dizziness, diplopia, which is a fancy way to say double vision, photophobia, tinnitus, and likely the most severe would be cerebrospinal fluid leakage. So your spinal fluid is leaking from this injury. So if it happened early enough in the frenzy, I'm not sure how she could have continued to stab herself with the force that is detailed in all of these reports. We know that it wasn't the last stab because the 12 and a half centimeter knife was found in her chest at 10 centimeters deep, which means that almost the entire blade was inside her chest. Mm. So how many times was she stabbed? 20. 20 stabs. So they're trying to say she stabbed herself 20 times. They are. I just don't know how somebody could cause that much harm to themselves in that prolonged amount of time. Like, I don't even think I could punch myself in the face. No. Like, I think when I got there, I would, like, I know, slow when down. When I see that in the movies, when they're like, I'm just going to punch myself to make it look like I got in a fight, I'm like, how? Yeah. How do you do that? Well, in the draft of the autopsy report that was printed that next day, the manner of death is homicide. So... The medical examiner thought the same thing. He looked at all of the evidence and he thought it's more than likely that this was caused by somebody else. But on the final copy that was printed February 18th of 2011, the manner of death is changed uh, to suicide. And a finding is added that, quote, the spinal cord injury was evaluated grossly by neuropathology. It was concluded that the injury to the spinal cord would not have incapacitated the decedent. Therefore, the decedent would be able to inflict the subsequent stab wounds to her body, end quote. I'm not a doctor by any stretch, but I have a really hard time with that. Similarly, Ellen's family, undeterred by the official account, enlisted the expertise of Dr. Cyril Wecht, a renowned forensic pathologist. And he actually was the first person who was allowed to look at the materials from the JFK assassination. He's one of the best. So his independent autopsy yielded an unexpected outcome. He classified the manner of death as undetermined, casting a shadow of doubt again on the suicide theory. I was able to read through the report that was submitted to the courts on January 11th, 2012, almost an entire year after this horrific event. The report details in narrative fashion Ellen's mental health struggles as a teacher in the Philadelphia school district, and it explains that she was trying to find the correct medications that would help the most. She was taking Zoloft, then was switched to a low dose of Xanax, and then was eventually given Ambien and Clonopin. I I want to take a moment here to really empathize so deeply with this woman as a former teacher who went through these exact struggles and doctor's appointments. 
Ellen expressed to her psychiatrist that she was overwhelmed with her classroom work, and I've been there. It can be such a consuming feeling of guilt, stress, anxiety, and it, it makes me so sad that she was struggling with all of that. I was able to transition successfully out of the classroom and have found such peace, but I know that that's just not always a possibility for teachers. I want to take this moment to say thank you to all of our educators because I know how hard it is to do what you do and come to work every day to have students and adults alike treat you horribly, have piles of papers to grade, literally thousands of questions that you answer a day, and then a new strategy to try and learn because it's the up-and-coming trend in education that was likely created by someone who hasn't set foot in a classroom in a decade. I see you, and I was you. So back to the expert opinion of Dr. Wecht. He reports that, quote, suicidal stab wounds can rarely be multiple. He goes on to explain that stabbing suicides are slowly decreasing in frequency. The varying direction of Ellen's stab wounds would make suicide unlikely, so... It was like in the direction that she's stabbing herself yes. would so not it was make very, sense. Yeah, it was it was different. So some of them would be like vertical, some of them were lateral, some of them look like maybe it was from the other, you know, the other side. It just it wasn't consistent with somebody doing that to themselves. Okay. The locations of the wounds high up in the back of the neck and the lower back of the head are unlikely for self inflicted wounds. There are claims that she may not have been able to even reach some of these like there's no way she could have done it herself. He also reiterates that there's no suicide note, and Ellen gave no indication to anyone that she had talked to that day that there was anything wrong. Now, are there situations where people do act completely fine and normal and as if nothing is wrong and then later commit suicide? Yes. Do I think that's what happened here? No. Dr. Wett also goes on to explain that a suicide victim will rarely stab themselves through their clothing which I didn't know this. He says that they'll open their shirt to expose the skin, and I'm very curious as to why, and I'm definitely going to do some follow-up research on that. His final opinion is as follows. Quote, The results of the autopsy and the accounts from the investigation, based upon a reasonable degree of medical certainty, it is my professional opinion that the manner of the death of Ellen Greenberg is strongly suspicious of homicide. End quote. I don't understand how... Anybody could look at this, and I read through the deposition of that medical examiner, and we'll talk about it, but he basically just says, like, well, with her history of mental illness, I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, I have a history of mental illness, but if you find me in my kitchen with 20 stab wounds, I did not do that to myself. She had never expressed suicidal ideations before. I do understand the searches on her computer. Yes. How that looks not great. Yeah. But again, I'm just stuck on the 20 stab wounds yeah. to yourself. I, that's just crazy. It is, especially when But those... I do I do understand the door, the way it was locked. Yeah. How else? Ugh, it's so... that That is the most confusing part of this case for me. This confirmation from Dr. Wecht that their dear Ellen did not self-inflict these wounds likely brought so much relief to the family. But with that relief came more questions. Most specifically, who would have done this? In addition to the pivotal new autopsy, the assistant medical examiner, Marlon Osborne, was reprimanded multiple times for being careless with examinations, with their filings, and incomplete autopsy reports. On July 24, 2011, 
11 of his autopsy reports were written up as, quote, the last informal coaching session regarding the quality of their reports and documentation. 11 cases where there were inconsistencies in the reports filed in regard to cause of death, documentation errors, and just an overall lack of care paid to these reports. Then on August 31st of the following year, Dr. Osborne was written up once again for inaccurate slash incomplete autopsy reports where, quote, 17 cases were discovered to have either incomplete autopsy reports or inaccurate information contained therein, end quote. So he's a boob. And finally, <laughs> on December 16th, 2013, there was another written reprimand in regard to a, quote, serious issue that occurred in the hospital with regard to a homicide victim. I read through the email that this doctor received. This person died and they continued to do their autopsy or they continued to work on this person, even though it was a homicide and it was it could be considered tampering with evidence like they didn't stop and alert the proper people that this that the victim had died. But with this track record, I think the integrity of all of the medical examiner's cases needs to be called into question. Well, Sunday Society, that is where I am leaving you today because this case is so big that I need two parts to do it. But I plan on releasing this tomorrow and not making you wait a whole week to get part two. Good. (laughs) Because I really, I want her story to be told. And in part two, we're going to look at the reopening of her case the deposition of Dr. Marlon Osborne, and hopefully give this case the the additional and continued light it deserves in social media, because this poor woman needs justice, her family needs justice, her family needs peace. So until next time, I'm Bianca. And I'm Hannah. And we are Taking, Taking Back, Back Sunday. Sunday. However, however, additionally, (laughs) 